Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 152nd episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends call me JAG. I am the CEO of the leading nonprofit introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways, such as graphic novels and animated videos. Uh, today, we are joined by Lars Tved. Before uh, I even begin to introduce our guest, I want to remind all of you who are watching us on Zoom, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, you can go ahead and use the comment section to start typing in your questions. We will get to as many of them as we can. Uh, Lars Tved is a Swiss-based serial entrepreneur and venture capitalist who spent 11 years in portfolio management and investment banking before moving to the high-tech and telecommunications sector, where he uh, has been the co-founder of an astonishing 13 companies, many of which have been uh, uh, award-winning. He is also the best-selling author of 18 books. I think that might be a record here on the Atlas Society Asks. Those include the Creative Society, Super Trends, Entrepreneur, and the recently published From Malthus to Mars, How to Live, Lead. You have it upside down. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Um, how, how to live, lead, and learn in an exponential world that sometimes turns you upside down. Uh, Lars, thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And thank you for almost almost pronouncing my name right. I know. I'm, I, I need a little bit more practice. So we're, we're going to have to do more of these. Um, so we always like to start with the origin story of our guests, uh, your origin as an entrepreneur and an investor, maybe some of the ventures you pursued as a teenager and young adult and what that experience afforded you. Yeah, I think um, in many people, uh, people's lives that there are turning points uh, where certainly it, uh, you know, it's like you, you, you change direction, you change gear. And for me, uh, everything, I, I grew up in a very normal family in Denmark, went to a very normal public school. Uh, everything was organized, you know, you had to go to school and all the lectures were pre-planned and you had to take your exams and get your teeth fixed at some point and so on. Uh, and then um, my parents got divorced and my father moved to, to Chile. And he wrote to me, uh, whether I would like to come to Chile. That was when I was 17 years, whether I would like to come for a year. And then I wrote back uh, if I could bring three friends. And my, my father, he was, he was so, you know, the nicest person in the universe. So he said, yes, uh, please do that. And he had a tiny house. So we completely overwhelmed his house. But um, then we traveled around in six countries in South America. And we had a personal budget of about $3 a day which we had earned by working in factories and I was cleaning toilets in old people's homes and so on. And, um, and we got into all sorts of trouble. Um, I, I got knocked down at the carnival in Rio, got attacked by a bird spider in my tent, uh, picked up a snake, which I thought was a piece of wood um, and, and blew both of my ears uh, at, at some point. Um, but Oddly, I really, really enjoyed the feeling of nothing was organized for me and we had to uh, handle everything ourselves. 
one of the issues, for instance, was we found out too late that you had to be 18 years to cross the borders. And two of us were 17, so we had to hustle at every border. And at one border, we couldn't get a stamp to get out. Um, that was in Bolivia. So we had to sneak in because there was nobody at the border station. So we had to sneak in and stamp our own passport. Anyway, so there I, I, I realized that that having responsibility for, for myself and having no, I mean, there were no mobile phones, there were no credit cards, I'm that old, <laughs> or we had no credit cards. So um, we only, we had our money rolled up in our sleeves. And after that, uh, my, my life became diff different. So I wanted to uh, go into the unknown sometimes. So when I was studying, I, I studied two things, first engineering and, and then in, later in parallel, also economics. Um, then I founded with two different friends, two different companies, because I wanted to again go into the adventure. I, and uh, that went okay, but there was nothing amazing about that. But uh, since then, I really had the desire to start things, start companies, and venture into also when, when I write books, it's not because I know a lot about the subject, it's because I don't know enough about the subject that I decide to write a book so I can figure out what the subject is about. Um, so yeah, so I've started uh, some of some of thirteen companies, some of them with other people, and some of them on my own, um, and um, and written these books along the way. And I think actually the reason why I'm <laughs> the indirect reason why I'm on this interview is that I wrote this. Oh, you can't see that, right? Can you? No. But I wrote this book called The Creative Society, which is about. Uh, it was it was it was a book I wrote actually because I read a book in in the book that came out as I think in, was in two thousand and three by Charles Murray and was called Human Accomplishment, where he goes through um, they they have a methodology where they take one hundred and sixty three encyclopedias from all over the world and then they have a team of up to fifty people for five years going through what is mentioned and then they. They register what is mentioned. Anything that's mentioned in half, at least half of these encyclopedia must be an important achievement. And then they mapped where it happened and when it happened. So they got like a, this world history of human achievement, and and it was quite remarkable that um, they they only took the ones where you could put a name to it. So there's nothing about who invented the fire and the wheel because we don't know. Uh, but the, the, they made a cutoff in, in, in 1950, but they had 2,850 years before that where they could have put a name to these accomplishments. And one of the many amazing things in the results was that 97 came out of the Western civilization. And uh, that surprised me because I was, like anybody, aware that China uh, had been ahead of Western civilization um, at the Islamic nations also had a lead at, at some time. So different areas in the world had been created, but then it had stopped. And he goes into why it stopped. Uh, but I wanted to understand why did it, you know, what was different about the West? And then I started really um, reading up on it. And I was quite far with the book when randomly somebody sends me an animated map of European borders uh, spanning many centuries. And, and there you see after the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, it dissolves into a lot of city-states. So at one point there were about 5,000 city-states in Europe 
And it starts to get consolidated one area after another. But you had one area in the middle uh, spanning from what is now Northern Italy through Switzerland, through Germany, a little bit of Eastern France up to England and including in England and also Benelux. That's That remained extremely decentralized for 500 years where the rest were centralized uh, kingdoms, basically. And it turns out that it was it was not only 97% came from the Western civilization, but before Europeans left Europe and started to settle in North America, in that was in 1604. Before they did that, if you look at then before that, there was only, Western civilization was only Europe. So where in Europe did it happen? More than half of it happened within that little area, which is 10% of Europe, which is a tiny, tiny, tiny part of the global landmass and was also a very small part of the global population. So my book took a turn because then I took Charles Murray had made a map that showed what he called the creative core, this, this area here. And I, I was sitting fiddling with my computer and overlaying the maps of decentralized area at different times and his map. And it was just stunning how they, they overlapped. And then I came then I started researching that. And then I found a study by the Institute of Economic Research in the US, where they had actually studied what happened in all these city states. And they divided them into two kinds. One kind uh, they, they called the, the princelings. That's where one family or one person ruled everything. And the other, other parts, I think they called the merchants. And that's where a council of citizens ruled. So more democratic public uh, uh, rule. And they found that people just systematically vote with their feet. So people would always migrate from the tyrannies to the free areas. And, and because of this, you could not kill creativity because when somebody tried to kill creativity through tyranny, one place, people would just, you know, the, the, the creative people would just walk to, to a nearby place where they would be free. And that is what that that went on for so long time that you got ignition in creativity, and that now it's like everywhere in the world. I mean, it's well, maybe that's an overstatement, but you know, Southeast Asia is also hyper creative, Israel is, and and so on. So, but 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 the the flame was ignited because you couldn't kill freedom, and you couldn't kill freedom because people could not they could vote with their feet. And you actually have the same system right now in Switzerland, which is kind of remnant. You have, if you look at, at Europe, sorry, I'm just talking here, but if, <laughs> if you look at Europe, uh, there are lots of art remnants from this medieval decentralized age. You have these mini states like uh, Liechtenstein and Monaco and so on. Um, but Switzerland in itself is a remnant because you have the state in Switzerland is what you call a minimal constitutional state. So it's actually not many people know that, but in the Swiss constitution, it is stated uh, that how much they, the state can collect in income tax, in corporate tax and in VAT. And if you add that up, the state cannot control more than around 11% of the economy. So if you then look at the, and and also they made an amendment to the constitution that states that that, that the state cannot as systematically assume debt. So actually, the way it works, uh, the 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 debt as a part of GDP has to trend down towards zero, which is happening now. So uh, the state is very limited, 
But if you look up what is what is the tax pressure, total tax pressure, all taxes, including VAT, as a percentage of GDP in Switzerland is, is about 33%. So how, how do you get from 11 to 33? Well, those 22% are collected by the cantons and by the counties. And um, I mean, there, there are literally thousands of counties and there are what is it, 26 cantons, I, I should, or 20, I can't, I should, I should never forget that. So what happens is that if one of the, one county or one of the cantons raise their taxes too much, people move. move. They move. <laughs> well, yeah, that, and they that's move. Uh, happening, you know, all across the globe. It's actually been happening yeah. um, at an accelerated rate here in the United States over the past few years as people yeah, leave, California to Texas. you know one one yeah. high tax state or um states yeah. that had extremely oppressive uh policies during the the pandemic i i wanted i'm gonna uh, get back to the creative society um because i did read it and i thought it was fascinating but first um one of the reasons that uh you caught my eye was that you recently gave the Ayn Rand Lecture, prestigious lecture at the uh, Adam Smith Society, friends of ours there. Um, tell us a little bit about how that came to be and um, how you discovered Ayn Rand and, and how it related to some of the ideas that you've been exploring. Well, the, well, the first thing was that happened was um, I gave some speeches in Denmark. I live in Switzerland, but I gave some speeches in Denmark about uh, how I saw the future of civilization. And then there was a publisher who came up after one speech and said, can you write a book about this? And then I mm -hmm. didn't have time. But then later, two years later, another one from the same publisher came up and said, let's ask again. And then I did have time. And I wrote the Creative Society. And then it was very well received. But this is a book about how transactions, civilizations, also nature, you know, how things actually on a basic level work. Um, but then they said, would you like to do a follow-up book about the political implications of this? So I wrote the book, which is unfortunately only out in, in Danish, but it's called the, the Goose with a Golden Egg. And it's it's about the contrast between collectivism and libertarianism, as you call it in, in the US, and conservatism. Um, so I, I described that. And I, of course, I, I, I went into the, the most important thinkers in these different areas. And Ayn Rand, of course, is one of the, the important thinkers uh, for libertarianism. And, um, and then I just noticed that if, if I mentioned, you know, when- Ayn Rand. <laughs> Yeah, no, so I'm an entrepreneur, as you mentioned, and so a lot of my friends are entrepreneurs, and some of them are very outspoken fans of Ayn Rand's, and some of them just uh, they haven't, haven't read these uh, Atlas Rock, for instance, which is huge, it's too much, but they kind of, they, 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 they think, oh, there's something positive, interesting, but most people, they, they do like this, Ayn Rand, no, 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 no. she's evil, she's evil. So I wrote this article in a Danish newspaper, or it's not a newspaper, but in a Danish paper, uh, which if I translated to English, it said some, something similar to Anne Rand, that horrible person. That was the headline. Um, and then I uh, just to get the attention from the people who didn't like her. Which is and, very uh, much like Ayn Rand, you know? She, uh, she knew how yeah. to, uh, to be sensational in order to uh, command attention. Um, 
and then I explained what her ideas actually, I mean, you cannot explain Ayn Rand in, in a few pages, uh, but I explained her main ideas and what they're actually about. And that caught the attention of um, other people. And then from time to time, you know, I'm getting asked about my opinions about her. So that's how. Well, great. Well, welcome to the party. I, I just, I just wanted to just add, I mean, this about entrepreneurs being quite excited about her. I mean, Jimmy Wales, who founded Wikipedia, had an Ayn Rand blog. Yes, uh, and he was, he has actually a very long history with the Atlas Society, going back to some of the earliest uh, summer conferences. Yeah, yeah with uh, the founder Peter, David Kelly. Peter Diamantis, who uh, founded uh, uh, yes, Singularity our, University. Our, our 2020 honoree. Um, Peter yeah. Thiel, our 2021 honoree. Yeah, so, um, and uh, I, I Mark Kip Cuban. Wilson, founder of Lululemon. Yeah, so so she is generally extremely well regarded, or very often extremely well regarded when you talk with successful entrepreneurs. Um, so yeah, that's part of my that, entry into. That's fantastic. Um, all right, so let's turn now to the Creative Society. Uh, you wrote it in 2015. Towards the beginning, you discuss the role of individual creativity in the development and advancement of societies. And it resonated with me because at the Atlas Society, we've earned something of a reputation for creativity, for which I credit the open objectivist approach, a willingness to take risks, challenge dogma, uh, and learn from mistakes. From your perspective, what kind of cultural attitudes, whether for an organization or a country, can help to cultivate the fertile ground for flourishing creativity? Well, uh, the, <clears throat> the cultural attitudes are also some organizational patterns, but um, the one, I mean, the, the lightning beacon of creativity in the world has for a long time been Silicon Valley. Now it's many different places, including Silicon Valley. But one of the one of the elements of of the mentality is there is that it's okay to fail, and um, and Anne Rand did not know about um, the book called Mindset uh, because it came out. <laughs> long after her uh, but it's that book is written by Carol Zwick um, and she wrote about it uh, she was quite old when she wrote it but she wrote about studying the mindsets of people who have success in life and, and people who don't uh, where we should be very clear that success can be about money but it doesn't have to be about money at all um, and, and and she said that successful people had something she called growth mindset and growth mindset is the idea that you can change yourself. So you, you actually psychologists say that you cannot change your personality very much, but you can change your mentality entirely. And she talks about mentality. And, and, and so one element of that is that you, you should not assume that your intelligence and your skills and your physique or almost anything about you except your personality cannot be molded and changed completely. And we can see it, you know, some people can run a marathon and some people get uh, exhausted by getting out of the sofa after Netflix. And so there, there could be a big difference in what you get out of uh, the cast that you've been built. And, and then it's, it's, it's a very, very important book um, because he says that 
people who have growth mindset, they will always try to, you know, in order to grow, you have to push yourself to your limit. Um, if you if you want to run a marathon, you, know, you have to push yourself many, many times to your limit in order to develop that uh, capability. But also in intellectual work, in, uh, in your social behavior, and many other things, you have to do that all the time. And when you push yourself to the limit, you will sometimes stumble and fail. And so you stumble and fail your way to success. And this is what became understood in Silicon Valley because it <laughs> people, you know, startup companies, entrepreneurs, they fail all the time. So in the book that I co-wrote, authored, which was called Entrepreneur, um, there we go through some statistics about growth yeah. startups. Seventy-five, um, 75% of all companies receiving VC investment do not give a profit to their investors. That was one of the statistics I picked up. Another study that you mentioned was that out of over 2,000 Israeli startups, nearly half went out of business. Two-thirds of those which had received investment failed. Whew. Do these kinds of figures actually line up with your experience um and when you are looking for where to invest your money uh what are some of the things you're looking for are you looking for that creativity are you looking for mindset and how do you yeah. figure it out yeah there are many different uh ways to invest but of course when i start 13 startup companies i've invested time and money in my own startups uh, but i also one of my startups was a venture capital fund and that's kind of what um, I was. I was only there in the investment period of the first fund, um, but um, there we invested in twenty-two companies, and um, about a quarter of them failed or almost failed. Which is actually we were lucky that it was not a higher number. Um, but if we look at the statistics today, four companies constitute probably ninety-seven percent of the value. Uh, and if we can even remove the three and say one company really, really made the fund. So the fund is up about 10x, uh, 1000%. Uh, but if we had not invested in, in that one company, it would have been a good fund, but not a great fund. And if we had not invested in those four companies, we would have returned 100%. And, and that's not good. So um there's there's enormous uncertainty and there's it's not only about skill it's not only about the size of the market or the quality of the entrepreneurs and so on there's also an element of luck in what you do i mean you you can be very there are times where you're very fragile and if one client drops out one investor drops out you get a recession you get a competitor you're just at some points you are too weak to handle that unless you have stumble up, up upon something extremely unusual so so that that's um that's how how it is to be an entrepreneur and so going back to your question the culture has to accept that growth mindset really the growth mindset has to be embedded into the culture and it is in some cultures and in, in, but in, in other cultures uh to fail is seen being seen as an enormously shameful um, and it, I, I, fortunately, I mean, in Europe, in my life, I have seen, I've seen many things go the wrong way. But I, on this particular issue, I, I think it's gone the right way. So there's a bigger understanding of 
what entrepreneurship is about and that most entrepreneurs, even if they work like crazy, even if they're very skilled, most of them, most of the projects actually fail. And then they yeah. get up and start again. And many of the ones that, you know, you know, as super successful entrepreneurs have failed three or four times before they made it. I, I think it's very interesting running a nonprofit think tank, you know, and having been in the nonprofit world 25 years ago at the Cato Institute, um, the, the mindset in those kinds of organizations can be different. They're a little shielded, or at least they think they're shielded from competition. So I always um, encourage my staff uh, to not purposefully go out and make mistakes, but that if they're not making mistakes, they're either not uh, trying hard enough or they're not trying new things. And it's only by taking taking risks, trying new things that you're able to have these creative breakthroughs. Um, and that also means being comfortable with sometimes falling on your face. So yeah. I like to say, you know, we, we take our ideas seriously, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. Um, Another interesting tidbit from your book, uh, The Entrepreneur, you mentioned when you give speeches to entrepreneurs, you sometimes tell, you sometimes ask the audience uh, how many of them own a dog. Tell us what you found and what it means. <laughs> yeah, it's because in uh, early in the creative society, I, I, I actually taught, write a lot about biology and um and how species evolved and the reason i ask about the dogs is that they are, depending on, on on how you count it they're probably around i don't know 160 different kinds of dogs but they can all mate with each other so it's actually all the same species and that spe same species is the gray wolf so there might be one exception but the, the rest of the dogs come from the gray wolf and so they they have gone through um a uh, civilization, civilizing process through selective breeding, of course. So uh, humans have always liked the ones who were more friendly. Um, and uh, and um, that takes me to the civilizing process that goes on in societies. So the, uh, until- but Just before I leave that anecdote, didn't you hmm. find that when you ask these entrepreneurs how many own a dog, uh, that they would say no, none of them, or very few. Yeah, they don't own. Yeah, they, they can't own dogs because it's impossible when you're an entrepreneur. It's a. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it it's it's interesting. Um, I think sometimes people have very outsized ambitions, but they aren't always um, realistic or don't have perspective on on the enormous amount takes. of work yeah. that it takes, and which is why you also uh, lean towards encouraging people if they can to start their entrepreneurial journey early, right? Um, to make those mistakes early. Yes. Which, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which also uh, got me thinking um, my last guest on the Atlas Society asks uh, was professor Jean Twangy. Uh, she's the leading expert on generational differences and she found that among Generation Z, those born after 1997, they have this preoccupation with safety, risk aversion, and that that is resulting in fewer young people interested in embarking on the um, an entrepreneurial path, 
compared to previous generations? Is that a trend that you've observed and is it a cause for concern? I have, yes. Um, so, I, so I spent most of my time in Europe. So I, I, I perhaps she was more studying what happens in the US, but there's definitely been a, a trend towards less entrepreneurship. Having said that though, I see signs of it reversing uh, in, in yes. some places. And um, it's, it's a part of, you know, generations don't change. What changes is that you get new generations. That's, I think, something that sociologists and marketing people are, are fairly familiar with. So um, there is a counter trend uh, in Scandinavia, for instance, where more and more young people actually admire uh, entrepreneurs and risk taking. It's kind of a rejection of your parents. It's kind of this healthy <laughs> where you say, uh, I want to do something which is different from what the previous... A healthy rebellion. The health, healthy rebellion, yes. And I, act, I, I I can't say for sure, but I actually think... Uh, what, what's it called in the US? The Dragon's Den. These TV programs uh, where entrepreneurs come in and pitch to raise money. Oh, like, uh, yeah, Shark Tank, yeah. things like that. Yeah, Shark Tank. Yeah, it's called different places, things in different uh, places. I, I I think that has inspired a lot. Actually, it's been very useful. Um, Another thing. Also, uh, sorry to, sorry. to interrupt, but um, I I saw in uh, reading and having on on this show um, a guest uh, Rainer Zeidelman, who's done a lot of studies about the rich in public opinion, uh, and in fact. The Atlas Society is, is bringing um, that book of his to audio shortly. He did surveys of attitudes towards uh, the successful. He did them in countries all over the world, um, in the United States, in Europe. And one of the big eye-openers for me was that while generally there's less envy in the United States compared to some European countries, in the United States, it's the younger generations that are more likely to uh, to be envious, to have schadenfreude, to um, assign bad motives to uh, the successful. Whereas in Europe, it was it was reversed. So yeah, that, so yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's new to me, but that's very interesting. And I just said, uh, yeah, again, go back to what the perspective of what this is, because in the mindset book. Carol Drake's book, um, one of the things she says is that people who have growth mindset, when they see other people who do better in some way, they think, oh, I would like to learn from that. That's very inspiring. But if you have fixed mindset, you think, ah, they have stolen from the society. They have, you know, gathered more of the case. And it's it's two con contrasting views uh of of society so some people they view society as a cake and you have to slice the cake evenly and others view it more as a bakery and so you have to create an incentive so more cakes are being baked and that if you do an effort you get more cake to eat um and i love i love that uh that analogy um i don't have uh i, I have uh maybe cooks in the kitchen. We've got a lot of people that are lining up to ask you questions. And um, I usually jump into this earlier, uh, but I've been having so much fun and so fascinated by this discussion. 
but uh, we do have to get to some of these audience questions and there's, there's mm -hmm. quite a, a few good ones. Um, mm -hmm. Candice Morena on Facebook asks, what do you think about people in America who constantly say places like Switzerland is a model socialist country? I've never heard anybody <laughs> say that Switzerland is a model socialist country. You know, I mean, they say that uh, Denmark is a socialist country, that, uh, you know, Sweden is a socialist country. But by some markers, um, Switzerland certainly uh, has more economic freedom than, than the United States. And uh, yeah, so just, I mean, just so I, I spent half my life in Denmark and half my life in Switzerland, apart from traveling. Uh, so I, I have very good perspective on the difference between the two. So Denmark is a very collectivist uh, place. Um, it's got a wonderful culture and, and uh, great people. Lots of them are entrepreneurial and so on. Uh, but I when I left Denmark, I paid 80% of my income in tax, which sounds, it sounds really high, but I paid 50% in direct income tax, but then there were 25% VAT. You had 180% tax on cars. You had taxes on this, on pension, on <laughs> energy and everything. <clears throat> and I moved to Switzerland and I had exactly the same income in the beginning. But I, then I paid 20% of my income in total taxes. Um, so, but Switzerland is a very, very free country. So I've never, I've, I've lived here in 31 years. I never received a letter from the government. I get almost no communication from the canton or the county. Um, it's, I, I, I regard it as a very free country, it, it, at least uh, compared to almost any other co country, there's a very high degree of freedom here. Steiner903 on Instagram asks, uh, Lars, do you think people put too much stock on programmers and Silicon Valley and tech and don't pay attention to the potential of tinkerers and inventors? Yeah, so uh, some what what happens in in programmers with software is that you have these this ability to create massive success in no time and this is was also what the reason why venture capitalists they focus on this because normally they have to divest so they on, on average they have to sell within something like six years same with the fund I co-founded. So you're looking for something that may go really well, really quickly. Otherwise it doesn't work for you. Um, but we, we are in the intersection between different economies. So the last 200 years we've had the industrial company. We still have that. It's Tesla, X space, are largely industrial. Uh, but then we have the precision economy, which started around 1980 with uh, IT, telecommunications, biochemistry. Um, but we also, and now we are entering into the, the hyper-intelligent economy. But across this, with less fanfare, you have seen the experience economy grow and grow and grow. So people spend more and more of their money on experiences. And for instance, when we started our, our venture fund, that was in Denmark. And so the first draft prospectus was about investing entirely in tech. And then as I said, why don't we look at the best exits that have been in Denmark the last 30 years? And we did that. And we found out that the, most of the best exits were not technology companies. It was a chain of bakeries. It was uh, wow. 
either downs, it was a Lego, you know, before that Lego play toys and so on. So it was lifestyle. And I think that relative, as, a, as a proportion of the economy, lifestyle uh, companies will just become more, more, more and more profitable simply because people spend more and more of their money on that. Interesting. Okay. Facebook, again, Jack Stein, what do you think is the biggest impediment to an entrepreneur's success today? Um, I think, so I, in, in our book, Entrepreneur, we wrote based on statistics combined with personal experience, we wrote about that. So we actually look at the statistics. So um, that some, I'll, I'll tell you what, you know, what typically goes wrong. And I've tried some of it myself. So speaking <laughs> with authority. Speaking from experience, yeah. Yeah, clever failure. Uh, so um, you have disagreement between the founders. That's in some studies, it's the number one thing that goes wrong. And I've been involved in this myself several times. It's really painful. Then you um, you 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 normally say nail it before you scale it. So get the product right find out how to sell it before you ramp up the organization. And I've at least twice, I've tried to ramp up way too early. So now I'm much more careful, uh, save the money until I really know it's, we got it, but then you scale. Um, you also got uneven scaling. So um, the sales is ahead of the product or the product is ahead of the sales or the marketing is ahead of everything. So, so or, or the business is ahead of the financing. So it, you, you cannot run any company at all without having some unbalance where something is too weak for some other parts. But in startups, normally at some points, it gets completely, absurdly extreme how uneven your performances on different things. And this is something that uh, very often kills companies. So these are some of the typical reasons. And I can tell you, I've been kind of trying, <laughs> trying out them all. So you just referenced the uh, lifestyle, the growth of lifestyle companies, opportunities, the experience economy. Um, in a couple of your books, you make frequent reference to Maslow's hierarchy of needs and trends with regard to moving up that, that hierarchy with regards to work and other things. Would love if you would share that um, dynamic with the audience. Yeah, so it, it this is something that's really relevant. Um, so I mean, the, probably the most of the audience have heard about it. But Maslow is that you know your first priority in life is to get shelter and food and sex, and then it moves up, and then uh, then you want uh, more and more sophisticated stuff, and in the end you want meaning. Um, and, uh, and this is reflected in the job market. So if you go two hundred years back, most people were were working with with producing food and shelter, and so very very and and also military defense, so basic security. And now, for instance, in Switzerland, right now I'm sitting in a ski resort in Switzerland, <clears throat> and and yeah, so here that you had these mountain farmers. Now you have way more jobs, but they are mountain guides, <laughs> uh, ski guides, mountain guides, um, and people you 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 people go and get massage and and uh, all these uh, mindset uh, courses and so on. So, so jobs just flow up uh, towards the top of the Manslow pyramid. And actually the interesting thing is that 
that flow accelerates every every time we get a boom in innovation, uh, which is quite relevant now because we're probably uh, at the beginning of a boom in an innovation because of AI right now. And I, I've seen different studies of this. Francis Goldman expect that the average productivity increase per year in the US will more than double the next 10 years because of AI and probably last longer than the next 10 years, probably at least 20 years and so on. So we will see a, a kink in the growth curve, in the economic growth curve, at least in all the developed uh, world. So, so economic growth will accelerate for quite some time. And then people say, ah, oh, uh, it will make us all unemployed. But research shows that whenever we have a boom in innovation, we get more jobs, not less. Well, and so, so, yeah, it's just it just creates a rush up in in the Maslow uh, pyramid because the technology creates wealth, and that this wealth is being spent. It's something called Mays law. It's in general economics law. The wealth is spent on something, so. Uh, the wealth you get from when you can feed all of Switzerland with 20,000 farmers instead of millions of farmers, uh, it releases wealth for the ski resource. And, and so this just goes on and on. So we'll have lots of jobs and lots of wealth and very low inflation, probably. And, and no need then, uh, you know, a lot of people are pushing this basic income thing and they're, you know, these are techno Oh, I don't know if they're utopians or uh, pessimists, but um, so if if you are predicting that we're actually going to have more opportunities for employment, more economic opportunities, uh, what about the need or the desirability of basic income? What are some of the trade-offs as you see it? Yeah, that's a very interesting question because uh, there, are, there are some big questions where I am divided. So I'll give you both sides of what I think. So, I mean, the argument, we just made the argument for not having basic income, right? That there, there will still be lots of jobs, actually more jobs because of technology booms. But I, I also have um, a counter argument, which comes from my experience of living in an extremely elaborate welfare state, which is Denmark. And that is that a lot of people actually get caught in the welfare system uh, because you have, once, once you, you go and ask for money, you have to to show that you need the money. So you have to show you're weak. Uh, you are incapable of handling, uh, financing your own life. And then they manage to get the money and then they get into a, a cycle, an evil cycle where they, they continue to portray themselves as being weak. And that actually has psychological consequences. So they become weak by doing that. And this is also something, if you read about uh, positive psychology, it's, it's quite easy to understand the dynamics that happens. So you get a divided population where some of them are, are caught in this system. And, and I think that for some of them, if they had a, a basic income, but a low one, you know, one where it's not very fun, but you can survive, then they would, any work they would do, one, even one hour would improve their economic situation. But if you are in the welfare system and, and then you come and say, I can actually do some work, then you will get penalized for it. And that's why they say, I cannot do anything at all. So that's my counter argument. And I, I don't, I, I, in my opinion, only experiments can show which of the two arguments is a better one. That's how I see this. All right. Um, now, I 
just got about 14 minutes left and I want to make sure that we talk about this spectacular new book uh, from Malthus Tomorrow's How to Live, Lead and Learn in an Exponential World. You write um, that, quote, the evolution of humanity has and will continue to be unidirectional toward increased tolerance, open-mindedness, equality, and cooperation. Um, of course, this progress is not guaranteed, and in any case, it's full of hiccups, uh, as we just saw in Ukraine. So what are some of the potential threats to this more open, more abundant future? Um, yeah, so uh, the, the, the statement definitely needs to be qualified, as you just did, because there are hiccups. Um, so there was uh, a German who, called, who was called uh, Elias Norbert, and he came out with a book called The Civilizing Process, where he wrote why, how, like like the case with the wolves becoming dogs, that how, how humans had become, had civilized themselves. Uh, they had domesticated themselves over the centuries, over the millennia, actually. And there's something I go into in the creative society that happens because when people, they move from an extractive economy where you need to get resources that are out there, like steal land from your neighbor to get the resources on that land, to a creative uh, economy where, where you think about things and you use entrepreneurship. Then when you think about things and you trade and you use entrepreneurship, then you have to become very good and doing voluntary win-win transactions with other people. And that creates a civilizing process. But on the note of hiccups, the book came out in, in 1939. So the year before World War II really broke out. So uh, there was Steven Pinker. He came up with a book, which is really a much, much more elaborate, well-documented follow-up on that, which is called The Better Angels of Nature, where he goes very, very deep into the reasons why you have this underlying civilizing process. So that's still going on, but with hiccups. And so, you know, okay, so the war in Ukraine is definitely a, a, a big hiccup, uh, not as big as World War II so far. Uh, but but you also have the, the vote, vote culture, I think it's also a hiccup. Um, and, and Censorship. Pardon me? Censorship. Uh, against free speech, yeah, I mean, the, the, the principle of the cancel culture, and, uh, which is censorship, which is that if I don't like what you do, I'm not going to, uh, I'm, I'm trying to destroy your livelihood. That, that is very much against what has happened since the medieval age, because that's what, how it was in the early medieval age. But then we developed this where, okay, I respect you have other opinions, but we can still cooperate. And this, now we are moving 400 years back. Um, the other thing is uh, you, that you cannot make fun of things. You know, you know the expression disarming humor, right? Yeah. Uh, because well, why is it? Why is humor disarming? Because in if, if you go back four five hundred years, when you insulted, you had you had an insult culture. So if you was criticized somebody, it was seen as an insult, and um, and then you you would people would challenge each other to duels. I mean, we still have it in Western movies, right? And then you shoot each other. And then, uh, and you had uh, the vendettas also, you know, somebody insults somebody from my family. I then shoot that person. Then that family shoots some, somebody in my family and then it goes on and on and on. 
And then uh, the rule of law combined with uh, the mutual respect for other people's opinions, but also combined with humor, disarmed the whole society and made it more peaceful. And this is what we are now seeing being rolled back many hundred years. And uh, the reason why I, 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 I think this is not completely undoing the civilizing process is that I think it's a minority counter movement that will uh, has captivated a part of one generation. I don't think the next generations will, will do the same. Uh, and if you want a perspective for this, in, so in general, if you want to have a good perspective on Ayn Rand, I think it, there's a lot to find in positive psychology and life hacks books uh, for that matter. So there's something called Cartman's Drama Triangle, uh, which is about uh, where you, you have a drama between an offender and a rescuer and a victim, right? And all mm -hmm. Hollywood movies are built on that. Politics is largely built on that. You know, you, you go out and tell one part of the population you have been you have been offended, oppressed, yeah, yeah oppressed or something like that, uh, and you've been oppressed by these people who are then the bad people, and we are the saviors. The Catholic Church in the old days, at least, you know, <laughs> had the same. So a lot in society is built on that. And so go and read uh, Cartman's Drama Triangle. You can find it, you know, super easily described uh, many places on the net. And then think about what this is, but because the, the, the Vogue culture and all that comes with it, it's that. It's, it's the institutionalized uh, amplification of, of Cartman's Drama Triangle. And it's something that psychologists say, I mean, they would sit, sit with a client and say, the reason your life is going bad is, is that you are involved in that drama. You have to get out of it. You have to become an independent person, take responsibility for yourself, and then become really, really good at doing voluntary win-win transactions with other people and signal all the time that this is what you're good at and this is what you want to do. Yeah, so treat people with respect no matter what how they are. Then you're signaling that I'm open for voluntary win-win uh, transactions. But if you are vogue and you signal... Um, that other people, groups of people, are enemies, then you, it's very difficult for you to be, become really good at making voluntary win-win transactions. Yeah, our founder, David Kelly, uh, has talked a lot about benevolence as a self-interested objectivist virtue, that um, you're signaling that you are open to business and that you view people as potential partners and traders rather than uh, you know, enemies or adversaries. Wanted to ask you about something you talk as well about in um, your most recent book, ESG funds, investment reported to advance environmental, social, government governance factors. Do you talk about the growth of this kind of investing? And I'm curious about how you view the growth uh, this growth impacting innovation and the growth needed to solve future problems. Um, we've mentioned Peter Thiel before. He was the Atlas Society's 2021 uh, gala honoree, and he's highly critical of this trend. He, he called ESG, quote, a hate factory. It's a factory for naming names. We should not be allowing them to do that. When you think ESG, you should be thinking Chinese Communist Party. Is he wrong? 
everybody choose their, their own way to express this. But uh, <laughs> I, I think I have a lot of sympathy for his views. Um, so uh, last year I was I was just invited to meet the CEO of one of the biggest companies in Scandinavia and was just like a social visit. I, I had no idea what we should talk about. But very quickly, he started talking about Africa. And he said that they did a lot of business in Africa, but he said it's such a pity with Africa because nobody dares invest in it, in it because there's a lot of corruption. You have uh, dubious uh, you know, work protection. You, some companies pollute a lot. They don't follow the rules and so on. So if you're a big company, you go in there, you are extremely likely to unwittingly, by mistake, get involved in something that violates your ESG rating. And because of that, we don't invest. I mean, most, most companies don't invest. So uh, Africa ought to get 100 times more investments than they do. Fortunately for Africa, the Chinese don't care so much about ESG. So they're in there and building ra railroads and so on. But it would have been far better if uh, the Western nations, Western companies, um, they, that they also invested there, but they don't because of ESG. So ESG is holding that back. But it's it goes far beyond that, actually, because um, there's also, I mean, the idea that you only you can only do things that signal virtue. Um, I mean, this may be sort of the, the, the most extended interpretation of the ESG mindset. Um, and 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 other things are unworthy of, of investments. But if you think about how come why why are why is Africa not sending money to help Switzerland or Europe or, or the US? Why why are the money flowing the other way? It's because Africa is poor. Okay, so why is Africa poor? It's poor because on a billion levels it doesn't work as well as uh, economically as Europe and the US. Why doesn't work at you know at a billion different levels? Because people are not so uh, as good at making like the glasses you put on on the books that are on your bookshelf and making that bookshelf or that sculpture to behind you on my shirt. And, but what makes a society successful is the combination of billions of small things, and they're not glo glorious at all. And some of them in the early days that some of them pollute and so on, but it's the ability to lift everything, the whole fabric, economic fabric of society at the same time that makes makes it efficient. And that is the reason why Africa is not sending money to the West, but the West is sending money to Africa. So ESG is, I think a lot of it is virtue signaling and some of it is very, very superficial. Uh, for instance, assuming that we can get rid of fossil fuels straight away it's completely naive. If you look at if you look at uh, statistics of the global energy consumption, do you know how much comes from uh, solar and wind today of the global energy consumption? Okay, one, so, one per, less than one percent. <laughs> uh, we have it depends how you measure, it, but like three or four percent. There's no way that it all could could come even within 150 years from solar and wind simply because we don't have enough industrial, we cannot get industrial missiles out of the ground fast enough. So we need to do something else. So if we just shut down fossil, you know, billions of people would probably starve to death. You would have wars every, everywhere. So you have to be realistic, but it's much easier not to be realistic because then you can signal that you're a very good person. And there's a big difference between doing good and feeling good. 
And so a lot of it is about feeling good, but it's actually not doing good. It's doing bad, feeling good by doing bad. And so to that extent, I think Peter Thiel really is quite right. Well, that, uh, so that doesn't, mean that, it doesn't mean that I exclude everything in ESG from having some purpose, but I think that it's become to some degrees a problem for society. Uh, that brings us to the top of the hour. This has been really, really fun. Um, I just thought I'd give you a chance if there's anything that, oh, well, I'm sure there's a lot that we haven't covered, 18 books, uh, all of your companies, but any any final words or any word about what you may be turning your sights to next? Yeah, so I'm, I, I, I am kind of lining up, but it will take three years or so, but I, I want to write a, a book of the history of innovation because I have a company called Supertrends where we are doing research and mapping innovation. So we had 13,000 innovations maps for 3.3 million years, so back to pre-human age. Um, so that's one thing I work on. Uh, and then another thing, general remark, I think that... Um, we, People who are interested in, in Anne Rand should really try to combine her ideas with what they find in science-based psychology that is very, very interested in interesting. Well, and how can we keep track of you? You are a man on the move. Um, a newsletter or social media or to set up our Google alerts. You can you can find me every uh, I, uh, on, unless you're trying to sell me something horrible, then you I, I connect with people on LinkedIn. Last tweeted LinkedIn. I think I'm the only one in the world with that name, or maybe there's one more, but uh, you'll find me. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Lars. Uh, this has been just absolutely magnificent. I learned so much. Um, everyone, you've, you've got the links to his books uh, in the chat streams. So um, do yourself a favor, go out and check them out. Uh, and I want to thank all of you who joined us today. Uh, thank you for your questions. If you uh, enjoyed this interview. If you enjoy our other materials and programming, then please don't just walk on by. Consider making a tax-deductible donation to support our work at atlassociety.org. Uh, and then be sure to tune in next week when radio host um, Barry Elder, longtime friend of the Atlas Society, will be our guest. See you then.